Welcome to the Major Mondays webinar for August 8th, 2022. Today we're going to be talking about keeping it under uh, one roof, uh, how to harmonize defense and subrogation efforts across the workers' compensation claim. So, uh, as usual, this is a live question and answer session. So, if you have any questions, feel free to post them over the course of the uh, presentation and uh, we'll get to them at the end. All right, so let's get started here. So subrogation rights in New York and New Jersey, both states uh, prohibit a double recovery by the injured worker. When we say double recovery, what we're talking about here uh, is a worker recovering against a third party tortfeasor uh, for the same injury that was the predicate for the payment of workers' compensation benefits. So section 29 and section 40 both give us the following rights, uh, give these rights to the employer and the carrier. Lien reimbursement, formal subrogation, that's suing in the shoes of the claimant, uh, and a future credit and offset against additional workers' compensation benefits, which may become payable. So what we're gonna try and answer in this presentation exactly is how can our recovery specialists and claims professionals work together to limit exposure? So step one, as far as I'm concerned, is getting the investigation right. So uh, you've probably all seen this in the course of your claims handling, or maybe you've even requested one, but very frequently defense of the worker's compensation claim will include getting a compensability report. Sometimes you'll hear this called an AOECOE, arising out of employment or in the course of employment. And what these things tend to do is make preliminary findings regarding the happening of the accident. They collect information and in various documents and witness statements. And while they're usually going to contain some basic investigation into third-party liability, uh, additional questions can be asked to pursue subrogation. And uh, to take it one step further, I would consider having um, your handling defense attorney or subrogation attorney potentially even appear for the investigation and the employer uh, interview, because you never know what could pop up that might be of interest. But let's talk about some questions we can ask that might be helpful. So in construction accidents, I want to see every contract and I want to see every single work record. I want to see who logged in for the job site in the past day, the past month, the past week. Uh, I want to see what days the claimant was there. I want to see who the foreman is. I want to see who sub subcontracted what to who, who agreed to indemnify who. Um, all of this information matters because very frequently you'll find yourself in this chain of uh, contribution and indemnification claims where you're left sort of scratching your head going, where is this money gonna come from? Am, am I responsible potentially? Um, I would also along that same line, inquire into coverages for the various parties involved. So, um, you know, if subcontractor A agrees to indemnify general contractor, who is subcontractor A's uh, carrier for general liability insurance purposes or automobile insurance purposes? Uh, I definitely wanna get the facts right in these investigations. Was there any use of equipment involved? You know, uh, scaffolding or a hoist or anything of that nature, uh, maybe a safety harness or a helmet. Uh, is there any fault on the part of the worker? Now, why are we asking this? Well, it doesn't really matter for workers' comp claims, right? It's uh, basically a no-fault uh, payment system, unless it's horseplay or complete and utter fraud. Uh, chances are it's going to be found compensable uh, without regard to fault. That is not the case for a negligence claim in the third-party action. Uh, any, even if we subrogate in the shoes of the claimant, 
if any fault is attributable to the claimant, that could reduce the jury verdict or potentially bar it entirely in New Jersey. So we do actually want to find out if our worker was at fault at all. Uh, the biggest question, though, who else can be blamed for this accident happening? I want surveillance. I want photographs, if any were taken. I want to hear about the prior accident history for the for this particular worker, this job site, were there any sort of reported incidents uh, in the past here, this employer. Uh, I also want to keep out, an eye out for potential implication of Part B employer's liability coverage. So this is where we start to get in the weeds, but um, you'll usually see that exclusion C5 in the Part B coverage that says uh, not liable for um, any indemnification assumed per contract. Well, there are suits uh, outside of that, perhaps suits for intentional wrongs or grave injury claims in, uh, in New York that would technically fall under the Part B coverage, even if workers' compensation benefits had been paid. So we do want to keep an eye out in case our Part B policy is going to get looped into this thing ultimately. So the global defense method, um, you've probably heard about this in a couple of contexts. I'm going to talk about it in the subrogation context. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention on um, Tashia's behalf that this is one of the things that we really sort of push uh, in terms of construction cases uh, to have your GL attorneys defending you uh, being the same law office as the people defending you on the workers' comp side. I can't think of a better way to reduce exposure, stay in constant communication. So uh, the global defense method is one way, perhaps even under uh, an OSIP or CSIP, to just really keep costs down and make sure you're grabbing this thing by the reins from the start and never letting go. But what does this mean in the subrogation context? Well, um, our several rights can be used as powerful leverage, and I'm going to talk about this in a second. But uh, we do have this thing that you might have heard referred to as the one-year letter. So uh, in New York, it's the um, Section 29.2 notice. In New Jersey, it's the Section 40F notice. You send it out a year after the date of law saying, hey, you haven't sued yet. If you don't, I'm going to. Uh, and you basically stick a 10-day timeline on the employee in New, in New Jersey or a 30-day timeline on the employee in New York to file suit, or you're going to go ahead and do that. Um, so how can this actually serve as leverage? Well, you know, you have a two-year statute of limitations in New Jersey, three years in New York. A lot of times these guys are going to sit around on their butts and maybe not even talk to an attorney until more than a year in. Uh, this really allows us to light a fire under them and get them moving. And then if they don't, well, if you have competent subrogation counsel, you can actually go and file the suit yourself. And then you find yourself in this lovely position of, oh, sorry, claimant slash petitioner, uh, you know, I know you had this third-party cause of action, and man, they have giant policy limits, but, you know, we serve the notice and uh, them's the breaks. And uh, then you start to create some leverage on the workers' comp side. You know, maybe um, we try to recover in excess of our lien since both statutes require that any excess be paid to the petitioner and claimant. And maybe that's a conversation you have where you say, you know, you got a pretty strong case here. I'm prosecuting it on your behalf. You know, I could swing for the fences if you want to stop building up that comp exposure for us. So um, it actually is leverage uh, more than you would think. And uh, when we're talking about doing this global defense in terms of subrogation, uh, your attorneys are going to be gathering the facts of the accident and the extent of employee damages from medical narratives, trial testimony. And that's on both sides, a de defense IME in the civil case or uh, an IME we get in the workers' comp case or maybe if we take the claimant's testimony at an ANCR trial in New York, you never know, but you're gonna be harmonizing all these different uh, sources of information 
and determining whether there's third-party liability and a chance to close out the comp claim. So what is the conclusion from this rambling? Always share findings and significant developments. Cases established, pay recovery specialist, just letting you know the case is established. I think the exposure is going to go up to X. And then, you know, the recovery specialist might say, hey, we just got the report back. It seems like there is third-party liability. Uh, I really do recommend constant contact. And a lot of times your attorneys can serve as a great go-between to make sure that that uh, base touching is consistently going on. Um, we also want to talk about properly perfecting your lien and subrogation rights. Notice is required in New Jersey for uh, liens. It is not required in New York. But there's still a benefit to constantly saying, hey, the lien has increased to this, the lien has increased to this. Uh, you know that the, that exposure is going to be factored into any third-party settlement negotiations if we're not the ones prosecuting. So uh, your attorneys can do that while defending the workers' comp claim as well. So I want to talk about applying leverage specifically. So we're going to be talking about the power of credit and offset rights, uh, making sure to get your consent and settlement issues correct getting to the adverse carrier first. So that's that situation I just described where you serve the subrogation notice, the claimant doesn't do anything, and then you take it upon yourself to sue, uh, or withholding consent to settle while workers' comp issues resolve. So both New York and New Jersey do give you the power of credit and offset rights, reducing benefit payments to an approximate one-third rate uh, until the amount of the claimant's net third-party settlement is extinguished in payments you avoid. Well, if the claimant is getting a temporary total disability, uh, you know, capped at around $900 to $1,000 per week, depending on the year, and all of a sudden that goes down to $300, well, there's a chance they're subsisting on those payments. And the sooner you get that credit going, uh, the sooner you can say, boy, you know, $50,000 Section 32 sounds really attractive right now. Um, getting the consent and settlement issues correct, we're going to be looking at a couple of examples of these, but um, at the bare minimum, you can negotiate better credit and offset rights or more favorable terms at the time the third-party action settles. Getting to the adverse carrier first, um, a lot of times you can get away with money pretty quickly uh, because you have to remember we're not suing for pain and suffering generally. What we're suing for is reimbursement of what the claimant would at trial get to throw up on the board as their special damages as bare minimum for a jury verdict. They'll say I had medical and indemnity costing me X, Y, Z, and then they'll try and get a jury verdict three times that. We're only looking for the medical and indemnity. So it's a, a very attractive option sometimes to get on the phone with this adverse carrier and say, hey, liability is clear, but just so you know, if you settle with me, you never have to pay the petitioner a dime, uh, and I'm not looking for any uh, non-economic damages. So getting to the adverse carrier first can actually be very, very helpful. Uh, and withholding consent to settle while workers' comp issues resolve. Uh, we're going to look at an example of that uh, shortly. So the global settlement is the single most effective way to reduce exposure. I'm sure you've heard uh, Greg Lois himself talking about this as an optimal resolution method. Uh, it is one of our favorite things to do and one of the best ways to cut off the exposure fully and finally uh, without paying too much more to get it done. So what is a global settlement? Well, we consider using all or part of our subrogation rights, whether that be suing directly or the threat of settling with the adverse carrier or future credit and offset rights or lien reimbursement rights uh, to negotiate a more favorable resolution of the workers' comp claim. Now, these are not always feasible depending upon the facts. For instance, if there's uh, authorized surgeries that are pending or 
you know, if we're just nowhere near litigating permanency at this point, or maybe you just have an obstinate claimant that doesn't want to settle. Uh, it's not always feasible, but when it is, it is a great way to get out from under the case. So here's a New Jersey example. Let's say we've paid 30,000 in combined medical and indemnity. We have a third party action settling for 95,000. The attorney fee is a third and there are 5,000 in costs and disbursements. So first we're gonna calculate our lien reimbursement, right? So this is $30,000 less a third, less 750, 19,250. Uh, the New Jersey example continued. Um, if we break this down, it's 30,000 to the attorney, 19,250 to the carrier, 40,750 to the petitioner. So section 40 provides for an extinguishment of future liability. Uh, but what does that actually mean? Well, it means a couple of things depending on, um, you know, third party counsel's awareness of how the law works and uh, your aggression. But uh, the case is Owens versus CNR Waste. Uh, you've probably dealt with this a lot in dealing with um, third party settlements in New Jersey cases. So what it actually says is the carrier is supposed to accelerate their future share of litigation costs on a permanent total disability award. Uh, and that's not a commutation of the, of the award itself or even a payment of compensation. So you're responsible for one third of the future award, depending on the size of your credit. And what this uh, hateful case says is pay all of that up front, uh, but then you do get to pay that one third of the future award up front. Then you do get a complete holiday from payments afterward, but you know the, the petitioner could die tomorrow and that's just you know money we paid that we're never gonna get to take advantage of. So the best resolution is to negotiate ongoing payments at the one third rate. Uh, so you can say, hey, we're looking to reduce the permanency benefits or we're looking to reduce the temp or meds to one third while we're asserting our credit. Uh, and you can negotiate this. And if your adversary will agree to it and sign off on it and petitioner's counsel is gonna sign off on it, it's really not um, problematic if everyone signs on board to the same thing and the petitioner is aware of it. Uh, sometimes adversaries or judges will insist on accelerating, however, and this is where we get into trouble. So you can consider waiving a portion of the lien to satisfy your future obligation. And I'm gonna give a very easy math example. So pretend there is a permanent partial disability award of $30,000 coming to the petitioner. Uh, well, our present obligation would be about 10,000 of that $30,000 award. Owens VC in our way says we have to pay that up front. So we're out 10,000. Uh, we have to pay additional money, even though we have this lovely credit. Um, but then we do get uh, a holiday from payments going forward. Well, what if we don't pay anything additional? You can waive 10,000 of that 19,250 reimbursement we just discussed, accept 9,250 in reimbursement and pay nothing going forward. As long as this is laid out in the settlement order and the settlement affidavit and on the record, this is totally permissible. Uh, just a brief word on section 20 dismissals. Uh, technically, you do not have section 40 rights on uh, section 20 orders, whether credit or reimbursement. There is this helpful case, Cali versus Hitachi Power Tools, uh, that says, you know, uh, you can negotiate contractually a settlement of whatever you want. So if the petitioner agrees contractually to reimburse the lien on a section 20, and it's in the settlement order, and the judge approves it, and it's in the petitioner's settlement affidavit, well, at that point, regardless of what the statute says, it's a contractual obligation to reimburse the lien. So that's always something we try to argue to include, and a savvy petitioner's attorney will tell us to take a hike, but you can still always take the shot. Uh, even if Section 40 rights are not reserved, we can still use uh, credit rights to reduce exposure. 
So you can't assert a credit on a Section 20 like we can on the PPD awards we were just discussing. Uh, you might hear those referred to as Section 22s or orders approving settlement. Um, but we do still have the argument, right? We do still get to say, your guy's only going to see one third, or if we pay it up front, he's going to see nothing. Um, so alternatively, we could just do a Section 20 to get rid of this thing for, for $10,000 and not worry about it. So you can still use your future credit rights as a means of reducing uh, the exposure and getting a Section 20 on it, out of it. Now, this is where it helps to harmonize your efforts because your workers' comp attorneys are going to know whether this is something that's even going to fly with a judge or their adversary. Uh, New Jersey is just one big community, so uh, it really helps to have a local, so to speak. Uh, the New York example, we paid 75,000 in workers' comp benefits, the third-party settlements for 100K, the attorney fee is a third, costs and disbursements total 5,000. So we have to calculate our cost of litigation percentage for the Kelly case, attorney fee and costs, divided by gross settlement uh, equals 36.67%. Uh, continuing our example, so what's the lien reimbursement amount? 75,000 less 36.67. 47,000... Uh, 497.50 in reimbursement rights. So now we ask, is the Section 32 feasible, i.e., do we no longer insure this employer or is the claimant no longer employed with this employer? The answer to either of those questions is yes. Uh, what would be the value? What can we ballpark medical at? You know, if we don't have an MSA issue, it's, we usually put it at around 10 to 15 unless there's a crazy surgery down the road. Um, <clears throat> and what would we think the value of future indemnity would be? This would be very easy in just a schedule loss of use case, less easy in an LWEC, but we're going to talk about what we can do about that in a second. Um, so you can consider waiving all or part of your reimbursement to fund a full and final settlement. You might hear this referred to as a $0 section 32. Uh, that is a bit of a misnomer because the consideration for the uh, section 32 is actually the lien waiver. Uh, and if you tell a judge, yeah, we're paying $0 for this, that's a fast track to getting it disapproved. Um, but you can spell out that, you know, this is in exchange for waiver of our reimbursement and the value of the settlement is still approximately 50K. You can get a creative with the attorney's fees if necessary to get this done. So you might hear from claimant's counsel uh, something to the effect of, I can't do that. I'm not going to see my attorney fee on it. Okay, well, what about this? What if we agree to pay the Section 32 up front and you get your attorney fee on it? And as to the Section 32, we have dollar-for-dollar dollar reimbursement rights uh, from the third-party settlement. And then all you're doing is moving money from point A to point B. He gets his attorney's fee. You get every red cent back after the third-party action settles. You've done a $0.32. He's gotten his fee. And all you've done is shift money around. Uh, so you can definitely get creative. And again, your attorneys are going to be in the best position to advise you on if this is possible. What if it's Section 32 is not feasible? Well, consider waiving all or part of the reimbursement to satisfy your future share of litigation costs. So just like in New Jersey, we do have an obligation to contribute to future litigation costs, uh, and we can determine the present value of future benefits. You can uh, discount it uh, for using actuarial tables uh, for a percentage per annum to determine what the present value of an LWEC is going to be, uh, then calculate 36.67% of that amount. Can, you, can the lien be waived to pay for that up front uh, and get a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset afterwards? Uh, if that's possible, you can consider waiving a portion of your lien to pay for your Burns obligation up front and then take a complete holiday from payments going forward 
and boom, you've gotten the equivalent of a Section 32, uh, quite possibly for less money than the 32 would have cost you, and depending on the size of the third-party settlement, you may never see exposure again. Uh, your worst-case scenario is it just def defaults back to Burns and Bissell rights anyway, right? You're going to end up paying at the 36.67% rate going forward uh, until your holiday is extinguished, so why not swing for the fences and, again, get creative? And your workers' comp attorneys are going to be in a good position to tell you what the present value of an LWEC is and whether we think we can use a third-party settlement to satisfy that. I just wanted to touch on other issues before we wrap up here. So talking about harmonizing defense efforts, one of the other things you've heard us talk about a lot recently at Lois Law Firm is HIMP exposure. So when we're talking about a Section 32, sometimes there will be CA.1Bs out there, right, that somebody has to resolve to settle the case and we'll resolve them in favor of the provider and, you know, uh, or deem them disallowed and the claimant is not responsible for payment, whatever the case may be. Um, the problem is if you just accept an injury site to get that done, there's issues of the left foot in a left knee case, and you know you just say uh, carrier accepts the left foot. Well, you have no idea what hospital bills were behind the scene, uh, and you've also just given the health insurer another year to serve their hemp demand because they have a year from ANCR or acceptance to serve it. So. Um, your workers' comp attorneys are going to be in the best position to advise you, hey, we are aware of all this prior treatment. Yeah, we could accept this uh, injury site just to get this 32 done, but you can bet there's a couple hundred thousands in hemp exposure coming your way if we do that. Why don't we just resolve the outstanding CA.1Bs without prejudice or without any admission of liability? We just agree we're going to pay them and not accept anything, and then everyone walks away happy. So keep an eye on hemp exposure when you're resolving your workers' comp cases. Uh, Intercompany loss transfer. So unlike with the one-year letters we talked about earlier, you don't have to wait for this. Uh, this is a right that is just granted to the carrier in cases where it applies. We have plenty of prior webinars on what loss transfer is, but uh, if you ever want to discuss it, obviously I'm happy to go on about it for hours, so you can feel free to reach out to me. It's also in the risk transfer handbook. There's a big old section on the no-fault law and what this is. Um, but anyway, uh, so your workers' comp attorneys all the way are going to be seeing what we're paying in medical. Maybe surgery gets approved, and now we realize this is going to jump us right over that 50K threshold immediately. Well, uh, that's the time you trigger your subro attorneys to send out that intercompany loss transfer notice. And you can get that $50,000, you know, possibly within three to six months of the accident for nothing more than just serving the reimbursement notification. And again, if you're harmonizing defense efforts, that is something you're going to be able to pick up on very early. Finally, I'm just going to point out litigation of consent issues and a possible 29.5 violation. So, uh, you know, you can put whatever terms you want in the consent agreement in New York. Our written consent is required under 29.5. Uh, you can put yourself in a situation where maybe there's a 29.5 violation. And uh, what 29.5 says is if the claimant doesn't get our consent or a compromise order, and they settle without either of those, uh, their third party case, then they've waived the right to future comp. So a well-crafted consent letter and a failure to adhere with the terms in that can be deemed a section 29.5 violation if we say it's revoked if uh, your final numbers differ or you don't give me a final closing statement within 60 days. And then when that happens, you pass the consent agreement on to the comp attorney and you say, okay, file that RFA with the board. We're gonna try and get benefits disallowed. 
again, Section 32 value for essentially nothing less than litigation, or I'm sorry, nothing more than litigation. So uh, this is just something I wanted to bring up as another way to sort of coordinate your defense and subrogation efforts. So we've been talking about it throughout this presentation, but just to drive a finer point home on it, why attorney coordination matters. So your defense attorneys are always gonna be in the best position to determine your future exposure. We talked about valuating that LWAC or the PPD in New Jersey. Um, and we're also gonna be in the best position to determine third party liability. That initial SIU narrative or AOE, COE report, or maybe the medical narratives or what uh, you know the narration taken from the IME, or trial testimony for an ANCR trial, we're going to be able to keep our finger on the beat of this thing the entire way. Um, third party potential can be determined at the outset, like we discussed, and we can always steer litigation that way from the very start, hitting them with lean notices time and time again, waiting until we get to that year mark to serve that uh, section 29.2 notice or 40F notice and maybe settle with the adverse carrier immediately. Uh, also, there's the issue of municipal law cases, which we're going to be going over uh, in another webinar, the pitfalls of dealing with that. But, um, you know, you do have to serve the notice of claim within the first 90 days or with uh, the state of New York, the notice of intent or file the claim itself. So um, if the petitioner or I'm sorry, if the claimant fails to do that, you'd better hope your comp attorney slash subro attorneys had done it or else that right is going to be lost. So uh, this is something else to keep an eye out on for, um, for uh, coordinating your defense and subrogation efforts. Uh, you can take steps along the way to always preserve these rights. Lean and subrogation notices as we discussed, keeping an eye on that HIP exposure, intercompany loss transfer, et cetera. And you can continually push the case towards settlement with reimbursement, subrogation, or credit rights as leverage. Hey, we're gonna reduce to the one third rate. Here's a good time for a lump sum or hey, I'm gonna settle this third party action, you know, unless you wanna work with me on this. Um, all of these are different ways we can drive down exposure and sort of push a claimant towards settlement with the ideal resolution as we talked about being the global. So let's take a peek at questions and answers. I appreciate you guys hanging in there. This one went on for almost a half hour. <clears throat> See if we have any questions before we wrap up here. All right, I just expanded. I do not see any questions. I will say again that all of this is in the risk transfer handbook uh, and you can always feel free to reach out to me directly. So thank you everyone for attending this month's webinar and I hope to see you next month.